Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. My guest today is someone who's been on the URM podcast and Nail the Mix a few times. Known him for a while, but I've known him primarily as a producer. But he really is a lot more than that. Kripalu is an engineer, a songwriter, producer, musician, and DIY expert that runs God City Studios. And over the course of a decades-long career, he's worked with tons of incredible acts such as Nails, Dillinger Escape Plan, High on Fire, Russian Circles, and of course, his own band, Converge. In the last year or so, with the onset of the COVID situation, Kurt saw a large uptick in his business with God City Instruments, which is home to a ton of DIY PCBs, as well as fully constructed pedals and guitars. Also, let me just say that Converge's new album, Blood Moon, is out November 19th. Anyways, I'll stop talking. I introduce you, Kurt Ballou. Here goes. Kurt Ballou, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. Pleasure to have you here. It's nice to catch up. Yeah. Because I know I haven't really talked to you in a little while. And I also think that it's uh, interesting to have you on in this context because, I mean, you know, I've known about you forever, but I've only known you personally uh, in a production context. Like everything we've ever done together has been you as a producer. Do you remember where we met? Where did we meet? We met in the Framus booth at NAM. I think it was yes. 2011 okay. yes. Yes. That's or right. 2012. Wasn't it 13? Was it 13? Okay. Yeah. Well, a while ago. Yes. Yes. That I do remember. Weren't you working with Creative Live? I was. Yeah, I did. I did a few things with them. For NAM, I was there with Orange, but also kind of solo. I was starting to think about turning God City Instruments, my little side hustle, into a real business. And I had built some guitars, and Orange was nice enough to let me um, have one of their my guitars at their booth as like their the test guitar. So I was kind of just testing the waters with GCI while I was there, and uh, but also there, there for Orange. And I was a, a famous artist at the time as well. Did you see it going this far? GCI? Yeah. I didn't see it going this slow. Um, but I'm a full-time recording engineer and I'm also in a band that, that plays a lot. So I don't really have time to devote to manufacturing full-time. And I'm very, really hesitant to delegate things to other people. It's something I need to work on personally is getting better at delegating. But, you know, in that time since we met, I've made a bunch of manufacturing partnerships that have worked out really great for me. Plus also learned how to do things on my own a little bit better with regards to how to design and build pedals. And so things are actually progressing pretty well right now. And 2019 and especially 2020 were actually like pretty huge years for GCI. So I'm excited about the future of that. And I've got new shapes of guitars coming out soon, actually bring, bringing back old shapes and bases and all kinds of exciting things. It's just interesting to me when someone uh, basically doesn't really define themselves as one thing. Uh, they, they basically just create things and the medium in which they create is, uh, you know, always changing. Like you're saying, like you're in a band that's active, got the production career, the gear. It just seems like uh, no matter what you're doing, it's got to be creating something. Well, you know, if you solicit 
successful people for advice, a lot of them will tell you do one thing really well. And I don't want to do that. I want to do a lot of things like kind of good. <laughs> um, and it just, I know that's just like more exciting to me to, to like do, do a bunch of different things. And I, I also sort of think of, you know, playing music, writing songs and recording, producing other people and making equipment, all that stuff to me is just different sides of the same coin. It's all about creation. It's all about pushing things forward. And it's all about some sort of creative fulfillment. I don't need to be playing guitar to be creatively fulfilled. I don't need to be designing a pedal. I just need to be doing something. And I'm happy that I have a, a number of different musical creative outlets. Does it basically scratch the same itch? It does for me, absolutely. Like, I feel like, I don't want to say I could never play guitar again or never design a pedal again, but like, I, I feel like if for some reason, like I were unable to, I think I'd be sad. If I was like unable to play guitar tomorrow or something, I think I'd be really sad, but I think that there would still be ways that I could contribute and still find creative fulfillment with the other things that I do. I think if I like lost my eyesight or my hearing, I think that would be really tough. But as long as I have like all my senses, I think I could find a way to be creative that would be fulfilling to me. What do you define yourself as? Yeah, I guess I guess a, a creator of some sort. I've always, you know, from from an early age, that's that's always what I've what I felt like I was, and it's what my father is, and it's kind of like how I was raised, just building stuff, tinkering, and first guitar I got, I took apart, and, you know, all the home stereos I would always take apart, and my dad was, you know, he built my first two bicycles from tubing, and, you know, he was always doing, building motorcycles, and all, you know, doing all kinds of stuff like that, and so that's just sort of like how I was raised, and, you know, some of my early career aspirations were like architect, at one point, I wanted to be a patent attorney. I thought it'd be really interesting. What? Really? Well, my father had a friend who was a patent attorney, but I also, which kind of made me think of that as a career, because kids only think of careers for the things that they're exposed to, right? They don't really, they're not yet thinking out of the box in, in that regard. Um, so my, my friend had, my father had a friend who was a patent attorney, and I just thought it'd be cool to be adjacent to inventions. Now, I'm sure the reality of being a patent attorney is not so fun and glamorous, but, um, you know, in my like 10 year old mind, I thought like, oh yeah, I'll be around inventions all the time and, and able to like help with that stuff and contribute. And I thought that that was great. I just always loved inventions. And you know, eventually I went to school and became, um, got a degree in aerospace engineering. I thought I would be working on like, you know, energy efficient mass transit solutions, things like maglev trains and stuff like that. Um, you know, it didn't end up going in that direction for me. But I think I could have been happy in that sort of career path as well. Do you think production is kind of a similar sort of thing? I mean, I realize that you are creating it in a way, but like you are kind of adjacent to the band's compositions. Yeah, I mean, it really kind of depends on how involved in the project I am too. You know, like I still record like punk albums in a weekend but then I'll also spend, you know, six weeks on an album sometimes too. And, you know, for those six-week projects, obviously I'm like a little bit more creatively involved than I am in the, th the three-day projects. I need all of it. I need that variety in order to stay excited about all the different things. The thing that I'm wondering is if time management is a thing for you, like that you concern yourself with, or it's more like when you're working on one project, that's what you're working on. And then once that project's done, then you're on to the next one. So whether it's making a guitar or mixing a record or writing a record. I'm historically a terrible multitasker. So when I'm working on a project, I really don't like to be 
working on multiple projects in the same day. You know, like I can clock out at the studio and then work on something after. Like people who have like a, a more like in the box workflow than me who might work on mixing three or four different songs from three or four different artists in the same day. And they're not going, you know, they may not be doing final mixes on three or four songs in a day, but they might be kind of picking at a few different things. Like that's tough for me because I get out of the flow of a particular project and it takes me a while to readjust. Yeah, totally. Like I don't love commuting to work, but I love the fact that I have like about 20 or 30 minutes in the car between my work day and the time that I spend with my family, both, you know, in the morning and at night to kind of change my, my mentality um, from like a home mentality to a work mentality. And, um, you know, it's eventually I'm going to have a, a mix room at, at my house and I won't, I won't have that time, but I can imagine I might end up just kind of like going out to the mix room and then spending 20 minutes, like listening to music or something before I start actually working for the day to kind of just get myself into a different mentality. Cause I, I do find it hard to change gears like that. And I think that that's one reason why God City Instruments has like periods of inactivity where, you know, I'm just working really hard on making records and I forget that like, oh yeah, I got to follow up with this manufacturer or I got to like do a revision on such and such a circuit board design or something like that. So it is, it is tough to multitask, but where I first thought you were going when you asked me about time management was with regards to recording and I'm doing a lot of time management with recording. I'm, I'm always scaling how involved I am and what my acceptance criteria is for the takes that people are doing in the studio based upon how much time they've budgeted to work on the record. I always want projects to finish on time. And so I'm, I'm not just going to work at my own pace regardless of their budget. You know, I always want to make sure that things are completed on budget. And that means that, like, maybe I don't do as much as I would do on a record uh, that had a smaller budget than a, than a bigger budget. I'll just, you know, things that are like budgets that are unrealistically small, I'll just try to like avoid those projects. But uh, but generally, I think I'm pretty good at keeping things on 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 budget, which is, um, I think, appreciated by my clients. So basically, the idea being keep it realistic based on the parameters of the project. Yeah, totally. Maybe once I get into the project, if I think their goals are a little bit loftier than um, what I thought I signed up for, then I'll have a conversation about that as soon as I recognize that. So either start preparing them for some uh, contingency plans or or whatever, you know, whatever the solution might end up being. Where do you see yourself, like, as a guitar player, when it comes to all this, like, do you have the time to work on it technically? Does oh, that even practice? come up? Yes, yes, practice. <laughs> Does that even come up? Unfortunately, no. It's a little embarrassing to say, but yeah, I think I got to a level of technical proficiency where I felt like I had enough guitar vocabulary to accomplish what I had to accomplish. And then I think I got a bit sidetracked by recording and learning, learning new skills rather than like perfecting the skills that I had or improving the skills that I had. And I think that that's kind of always been my problem in life is, you know, I get to a certain level and then instead of, well, I mean, I, you know, I'll definitely fight over a bunch of plateaus and get to like a fairly high level of, of uh, proficiency, but then like, you know, then I'll get, I'll get distracted with something new, like, all the time that I spent learning to design guitar pedals, like, could that have been better spent watching URM Academy stuff and learning learning tips and tricks from uh, various other engineers? Probably. And would that may, have made me a better engineer? 
maybe, but I, I actually think that, well, I've kind of always thought that like when it comes to music, the more diverse your vocabulary is, like the better, you, you know, if you're a guitar player, like if you know how to play drums a little bit, then you're going to be a better bandmate to that drummer because you'll understand what is possible to be done on drums and and it helps it in your guitar writing and it helps in your communication skills with your bandmates just like learning about electronics helps you use electronics so the fact that i like understand circuit theory a lot better now than i did five or even ten years ago um i think is i think that's made me a better engineer more than just sort of practicing would have but yeah when it comes to guitar uh, i definitely <laughs> i definitely could practice more i find that i mostly the way that i practice and the way that i improve guitar is by and this is kind of actually how it's always been is i write songs that are above my ability level and then i just drill that stuff until i get it to the point where i can play it so it's outcome oriented yeah but then my drummer comes along and plays everything like 10 to 20 bpm faster and then i'm fucked again <laughs> but <laughs> in theory in theory i'll get there I think that what's most important is knowing how, like what the conditions are for you to do your best in. So some people do really well with the super structured practice. And I think other people do really well when the goal is there's this song. I need to know how to play this song. We're recording this song or we're going to be playing it on tour. So I need to know it. And then all the focus goes into that and, by any means necessary. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I to me, guitar is a vehicle for creation. And it's, I, I mean, I guess I do love guitar, but like I think of my, I guess I think of myself more as like a, you know, a songwriter and band member and producer and all that stuff more so than a guitar player specifically. Like, you know, like the new Converge record, I at some point or another on the record, I played pretty much every instrument and just not because I wanted to, but just because I was the one in the studio and something needed to get done. So yeah, sure. I'll play some glockenspiel or some, do some drum overdubs <laughs> or play a little bass or what, you know, whatever had to be done. So it doesn't sound like uh, you really put a limit on what the tool is that you're using at that point in time. No. Just yeah. Just whatever that, whatever the goal is, just do what you need to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could be, and I think a lot of people, you know, my my age are like very um, idealistic or or very purist about how they want to make music, and I'm I'm not at all. I think just any anything goes. You're trying to achieve a, res, a result, and however you need to get there is how you get there. Was there ever a time period where uh, you were more, I guess, uh, discipline oriented with? your practice or was it always was it always like that like there's a song going to learn this song the end yeah well it was usually more like the song i'm going to write this song and i think the discipline i was very disciplined as, you know as a band member just i think we were a very extremely driven band especially like in the late 90s and early 2000s and you know we were in our 20s at that point and probably really competitive with other bands too. So like, we're going to play faster. We're going to play harder. We're going to play more tech. We're going to play more of this. We're going to play more of that than every other band. Like we want, we want to like set our sights on kill, like hit the stage, just destroy whatever town we're in that night. And, you know, part of that is the performance. Part of that's the songwriting and all that stuff was, that was where my discipline was, was about just annihilating the stage. Peace on earth, war on stage. You know, 
That's a good way to put it. I think that's a Scott Vogelism. What do you mean that the band was driven? Uh, and I, I mean, that might sound like a stupid question, but I actually mean it in more of a practical sense. I think it was like a purely instinctual thing. You know, I think young people are not always, they can't always like put to words what it is that drives them. I think it's, but I think it's instinct. You know, we were young and full of gusto and, you know, had had to create a place in the world where we fit and we didn't fit anywhere that existed at that time. So we just had this drive to create a space for ourselves that was ours. And um, it was us, our band, but it was also like, really everybody involved in our music community. And we had this, uh, there was just this drive and this excitement around um, creating this new music. Was it like an unspoken sort of thing? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think looking back on it, we can, we can kind of analyze it and try to put words to it. But at the time, nothing was weird about it or it didn't necessarily feel new. It just made just made sense to us. And I think this is what happens with, with every new generation of musicians. They need to set themselves apart in some way because, you know, it's important for every generation to find their own voice. And, you know, part of doing that is like doing things that the generation before them actively dislike. <laughs> At least the generation sort of, maybe not everybody in that generation, but, you know, the generation as a whole. I think that's why, you know, you get a lot of old people doing the kids these days kind of stuff. But uh, it's, it's all good, you know. We're all going to be every age at some point, right? Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. If things go well. All morbid <laughs> thoughts aside. All things working out well, yes. We're all going to be all ages at some point. The reason that I'm wondering what it translated like is because there's like these things that people say about bands. Like, got to think about it like a business or us against the world. Like, all these, I guess, ideas that are, I think, easier said than understood. But I have noticed, and I remember this from being in a band too, that when it comes down to it, a lot of it is just making the best decision possible in the moment. It's very, very hard to really, really plan too far ahead in a band. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's also a recording. Like you, you make the best decision you can in the moment and then you build upon that decision. Have you ever had a recording that actually went completely according to plan? No. And you can't be too attached to your idea of what something could be. You have to just be present in the moment and appreciate what it is. And hopefully whatever it is in that moment is as cool or just as cool as you imagine it. But laterally, you know, it's never going to be exactly what you imagine it, but hopefully it'll be, it'll be as cooler, cooler. I think about that a lot in terms of like collaboration. Cause like when I'm primary songwriter on a song, I usually have a vision for what that song could be. You know, oftentimes it turns out completely different. So I have to have, you know, an open mind and an open heart that what comes as a result of collaboration is going to be better than what it would have been had I just done it all by myself. You know, it might not be as pure of a vision, but if you have like collaborators that you trust and believe in, and um, even if you don't agree with all of their decisions, if you, uh, if you all sort of trust that each other, that you have the same goals in mind, then um, that collaboration can make the, whatever piece you're working on much, much greater and bigger than it would have been otherwise. Like, like, for example, like Converge, we've got a, a new album coming out soon. And this past week, we released a single from it. 
called Coil, and that song started just with me. It's a very interesting song, by the way. Oh, thanks. Yeah, my, my pet name for the song was Radio Garden because it sounded like a Radiohead meets Soundgarden kind of song, and it was yes. like entirely different, and I made a demo, and I programmed some drums, and I played it for everybody, and they're like, oh, okay, I'm not sure that this is really what we're going to, what direction we're going for, and we kind of like shelved it, and then like... At some point, I Steve um, Steve Brodsky, who's playing guitar on the record, also um, he asked me for the uh, the session files. I sent them over to him, and he like completely manipulated it, changed the tempo. Elastic Audio is awesome, by the way. He changed the tempo of everything, and essentially completely rearranged the song into what. Uh, if you've heard it, like, yeah, what the song is now. And, and then the collaboration still happened from there with regards to, like, the, the details and how people's parts would be. But in terms of, like, the basic structure of the song, you know, he came up with that. But, you know, he never would have come up with that had it not been for my, you know, failed experiment. And I never would have come up with he with what he came up with because I was going for a different thing. But, you know, sometimes those, uh, those little, like, a collaboration can can do really great things like that that can force you out of your comfort zone that can make you come up with something that you wouldn't have come up with otherwise. And, you know, it was a bit difficult for me to hear my song dismantled and reassembled in a different way at first because I was like, but the melody, it's like <laughs> that one note is like a half step off from where it was before. Now it's a different tempo. And uh, But, oh, you know, once I finally came around to it, I was like, oh, yeah, this is way better. It just took a little while for me to accept that you know, somebody else had a better idea than me. Um, but, you know, with, with experience in, in, you know, making music and working with other people, like, you know, you can get over yourself a little bit and uh, eventually get to that point where you are open to that sort of thing. And I feel like I'm at that point now and it's, I'm a lot happier than I was, you know, five, 10, 15 years ago when I was fighting tooth and nail over every little piece of minutia to get it my way. Do you think that that's kind of uh, going to be a little bit more difficult if you have made a career as a producer, because, uh, I mean, you know, all productions are collaborations, right? But yeah. at the end of the, the day, one of the job descriptions of a good producer is to kind of, I don't want to say no best because that's not it, but it's to ha provide some sort of North star, uh, for a group of people trying to get their vision committed to, audio file. It, it can be for sure. I don't think that I'm that heavy handed of a producer when I am in the production role. You know, I, I should say, stay for the record. I feel like I'm usually an engineer more than a producer, but, um, when I'm in the, when I'm wearing my producer hat, um, I just try to be another opinion in the room and on sometimes an outside opinion, sometimes an additional opinion. Sometimes it's just a, um, devil's advocate. Sometimes it's suggesting ideas just to, get people to think about a song in a different way. And, you know, oftentimes they, f after trying some other ideas, they feel like the original idea was the best. And I'm okay with that because I've gotten my way plenty of times over the years, both in my band and in the studio. And I'm okay with not getting my way now. Um, I think, I think a producer's role can be to be that North star, but I think more, more so than that, a producer's role should be to just sort of identify where they're needed and then fill that role, whatever it may be. And 
if there is already strong leadership within the band and a strong vision within the band, then there's no need to come in and muddy the waters with that. But if there is no strong vision and they need help in that regard, then yeah, absolutely. Jump in there and, and try to try to guide people. I think what I, most of what I do in terms of production is, is pretty subtle, uh, but meaningful. But still, even if uh, if you're not like the artistic North Star, they're still looking to you for it to sound awesome. Yeah, for sure. Like, so, so like you, even if you know you're not taking an active role in one aspect, uh, you've got a super dominant role some way, some way, shape, or form. Uh, so, uh, I guess I'm just wondering if like there's some aspect of that that's uh, almost opposite of being like, you know, a main songwriter in a band kind of situation, or if you kind of see it as a similar well, sort of thing. I get a similar sort of satisfaction from it, but I would say that the the big difference is that a producer, whether it's me or somebody else, we can step in at the 11th hour and say, yes, that's good. No, that's not good. And we have no ownership over any of the work it took to get to that point. So like when I'm, when I'm writing a guitar riff and I spend like days and days and days trying to dial it in and get it perfectly right, get the exact sort of feel and the right notes and all that stuff, like... Like it might be that I'm just fighting it too hard. I've I've spent so much time on it because it's just not that great of an idea to begin with. And some third party, some independent person can come in and just say like, oh, no, that sucks. And like, that's going to piss me off because I put a lot of effort into it. And this other person's coming in and telling me it sucks. But maybe it does suck because that other person who's coming in, they don't care how much time you've put into it. And so as a producer, like that's the... Like coming in, I actually feel like it's really important to come in cold, to come into ideas that are, um, you know, nearly fully formed so that I have, I haven't put any effort into it. And because I have no effort invested in it, I can be really honest about whether it's good or not. And the sunk cost fallacy. Yeah, Absolutely. It's yeah, it's definitely pot committed or something to to a riff. Um, and I've I've done a few projects actually with um, the uh, the other engineer who works in my studio, Zach. He's a great engineer, and I've done a few projects where like he's started a mix for me, and then I've just come in sort of at the end of the process and put some finishing touches on it. And I've really really enjoyed that because rather than like you know listening to the snare drum for an hour and dialing in the gate. And or whatever that uh, you ordinarily do at the beginning of a mix process that kind of burns you out. Like all that stuff was done for me and I could just sit down and like listen to the song in its, you know, 90% finished form and say like, oh yeah, this rocks or like, oh yeah, I can tweak that a little bit. And I find that like in five or 10 or 15 minutes, like I can make a mix 20% better um, when I wouldn't have been able to do that otherwise, like if I had just done it all on my own. I always feel personally like I'm better when I'm collaborating. Yeah. Because there's like this, uh, I don't know how to describe it other than there's just like the metaphor in the way I see it is kind of like 
you're in a room and you can't really see the walls almost. Uh, and working with other people allows you to see what you couldn't see before. Uh, like it, you're just trapped in your own bubble almost if when not collaborating. And sometimes what's in that bubble is fucking cool. But uh, oftentimes I think that it's super limited. Right. It's And collaboration is better when you have a group of people whose minds work in different ways. So yes. like you don't necessarily need the best group of musicians, for example, or the best group of computer programmers or whatever it is. What you need is like a diverse group of people in order to get you um, out of your patterns of thinking, thinking about things in, in new ways. And um, the other thing that I think we don't think a lot about, but is really important with collaboration is that you, it keeps you from being lazy because you know that other people are depending on you. Like I always, I always wonder like how does solo artists practice? Like, do they sit down and play their songs all the way through? Do they like, do they go (laughs) to, do they go to like the jam space every Wednesday and like play their songs all the way through? Like I, I, I wouldn't have the discipline to do it. Um, it's, it's, yeah, yeah, I should knowing. ask some of them that I know. That's <laughs> yeah. a good question. I mean, it's one thing if you're doing things like if it's a recording project, that is a solo thing where you're like building up tracks, like, like the way that a band would, but you're just doing it by yourself. That's different than like performing as like, you know, voice and piano or something like that. Um, yeah, I just don't know how those people do it. I'm, I'm in, in awe of the people that can do that. I mean, I, even going back to like school band in elementary school, you know, we had, uh, we'd get out of class to have saxophone lessons in a group. And, you know, if you weren't prepared for the lesson that week, all of your classmates were going to know. And just like if you show up to band practice and you haven't practiced the songs for the set that you're rehearsing for, then all of your bandmates are going to know and you're going to, and it's going to like slow you down. So you don't want, you don't want to be that, you don't want to be a person who's like dead weight in the band. You want to be, um, you want to be, you know, you want to pull your own weight, right? So uh, collaboration can ensure that you show up prepared. So it's, it's a good motivator for your work even outside of the collaboration. Do you think also healthy competition is part of that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, competition can be, can be bad, but generally a little bit, a little bit of competition is good. You just like, I think like when Converge tours, we don't take bands that suck on tour with us. Like we, we take awesome bands that are popular that people want to see that are going to like, we want a band that's going to push us to play our best when we have bands opening for us. And when we are opening for another band, we want to put on the kind of show that's going to make them scared to go on after us. And it's not because we have anything against any of these bands. It's because we're just like, it's just like a little bit of competition. Man, have you noticed those those bands that only take really shitty bands out? Oftentimes, local bands that are, you know, have like, quote unquote, investor or something. Uh, there's these these bands that only do that. Like they they will take out like four shitty bands every single time just to kind of pay them. Yeah. And they'll also probably like limit how loud the PA can be for those bands. And then so they're a little bit louder. Yes. I've noticed that those bands tend to not do that great. Yeah. Those industry games are funny to me. And I, I kind of, I guess I understand why it's done, um, you know, partially. I think sometimes it's, yeah, like the opener's paying for the promotion or they're doing something else that's, you know, makes the tour financially better, I guess. I don't know. I just think you want to like, if you want your shows to be remembered, you want the band to like have a long 
uh, a long career, then you just want to like be known as a band that tours with other awesome bands that puts on a great show that will get people to come and see the entire show. Whenever you see those kinds of industry games, there's always a reason. And probably in a conversation, the person who made that decision explains it to you. It could probably make sense, at least logically speaking. But I don't think that the concert goer is using logic when they are enjoying a show or not. They're just enjoying it or not. And if every band uh, is amazing, they're going to remember that evening more so than other ones, I think. And that's what's going to get them to come back and go see those bands again and actually become fans of that band or continue to be fans. Totally. I mean, with everything I do musically, I always try to think of myself as like, you know, what if the shoe is on the other foot? What if I'm going to this show or what if I'm listening to this record or whatever? Like, I mean, I'm sure I fall short of that sometimes, but I, I try to, now I'm not necessarily trying to like placate an audience, but I do think it's important to remember what it's like to be a show goer or an album listener and to, you know, not, not phone it in just because you're having a bad day or because you've done it a million times before or whatever. I don't think it's placating. I think it's kind of respect for the whole experience. When I say placating, like Converge is not going to go on tour and do a greatest hits set. Like yeah. we're, <laughs> okay. we're not monkeys for your amusement. Like we're going to do what we want to do. But like, I guess if I was a Converge fan, I would want to see Converge doing what they want to do within reason, as long as it's like heartfelt and energetic. Just like when I go to see Neurosis or the Melvins or something like that. Like the, I, I respect that artistry and I, I think they're going to do something that's great and they might not play every song I want to hear, but that's okay. Now, if I'm going to see like some pop artist or something like that, clearly I want to he hear the hits or if I'm going to see like some like legacy rock, like I'm going to see Aerosmith, like I want to see the hits, but you know, for Con Converge, I think it's, uh, I think it's appropriate that as long as we're like giving it 100% 110%. That's all we need to do for, for an audience to, to at least to, to feel that we're still a sincere band. It's a weird thing. The difference between respecting your audience and doing right by them versus sucking up to them or doing something that's inauthentic. Yeah, but it's tough. I understand why so many bands do are sort of dabbling with some kind of cheesy stuff because... You know, there's just not a lot of uh, pies getting smaller and the number of people fighting over the pieces of the pie are getting bigger and it's it's hard to sustain yourself. Yeah, the house is not going to pay for itself. Housing costs and like fuel costs, all that stuff is insane right now. Inflation was, what, 5% last year? Yes. <laughs> like I understand why people are going on tour and like doing, you know, all sorts of different VIP package type things that they probably don't love doing but just kind of have to do in order to... Um, support themselves. And I think also a lot of, I find a lot of people now, like when I first started getting into rec, into music, like bands would hope to sell like one copy of their album to a lot of people. Now they're hoping to sell a lot of copies of their album to a few people. <laughs> you know, they're hoping that people are going to buy every, every color of the vinyl that they put out and every format and, um, you know, every piece of merch and all that stuff. And I'm, you know, my band's certainly guilty of that too. And it's just interesting to see that shift. Yeah, it's a, I believe it's called long tail theory. It's more about a lot of small transactions as opposed to a few really big transactions. 
if anyone has an issue, at least in my opinion, with artists doing this sort of thing, uh, they're probably not taking into consideration the fact that those artists are actually people who have a life outside of that band that they're probably trying to sustain through that band. Yeah. Reality plays a role. I mean, art definitely lives in the world of ideals, but bands live in you know, this world. Yeah, and it's tough too because so many people that I know, like I'm 47 now, so a lot of my friends my age, like, you know, they spent a couple of decades incredibly dedicated to playing music and putting all their eggs in one basket uh, without really a plan B. You know, now they're, you know, in their mid-40s or something, and it's tough for them because, like, their their band probably didn't get to a size that was any bigger than them being able to support themselves while they were actually on tour. I feel really fortunate that, like, by having a recording studio, I'm, like, a little bit outside of that economy. I'm in a career path that, that I can sustain indefinitely, hopefully. <laughs> was it a plan B? Well, I guess it was. I mean, I don't know. I've just always kind of gone with the flow. I didn't intend to be a recording engineer starting out, but I always intended to be involved in music and recording was a part of that. And I just sort of fell into it as a career because I got laid off of my last job. But I was, plan A was never to be a professional musician. I have gone so much farther in that than I ever thought I would go. You know, plan A was to be a aerospace engineer. Plan B was to be a biomedical engineer. I did that for a while. And then I guess plan C was recording engineer and Converge and God City Instruments have been sort of nice side hustles for me that let me stay creative and also are self-sustaining and will make a little bit of money at this point. So yeah, I'm, I'm stoked that I've got a, a few different things that I can do that are all musically related, but I, I think a lot of my friends are not quite as fortunate for whatever reason. Well, I feel like part of it is just probably a few things. Bad planning is one or no planning. Uh, so just kind of luck of the draw with what they were pulled towards. And if they were pulled towards just playing guitar, that was their main thing. And that worked for a long period of time. I think that the lack of planning along with uh, just not thinking forward to the future or thinking about the fact that it might not last forever or it might not last like this forever. I just, I think that, I've known a lot of musicians that don't really just think of that. They don't entertain that option for whatever reason. I don't know if it's part of the artistic temperament or what, but I just feel like that's not a very common thing to think about. It's becoming more common though. It is becoming more common, at least from what I've seen, than at least when my band was touring. I feel like it was super rare when my band was touring. Well, people know now that if you want to be in a band that can function, that you have to be good at everything. You know, like you've got to be good at, at playing your instrument. You've got to be good at writing songs, but you've got to be good at marketing. You've got to, you've got to have a look. You've got to be good at talking with other people. You've got to be a kind person. There's just so much more that you have to do now um, than you did when, when we were starting out. I think so. It's a, it's a different personality type that is excelling now, but I think it's good. I think it's great that people have that diversity of things. I know a lot of, a lot of my peers are sort of in the mindset that like, well, I'm good at guitar, so I don't have to be good at anything else. Like I was, I was put here to play guitar. I don't have to be good at marketing or I don't have to be good at like, you know, whatever other thing that it takes to be in a band. 
You better be really good at guitar <laughs> if you're going to do that. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, if you're really, really good at guitar, then you'll get people to do everything for you. But most people are are not in that situation. And Yeah, like really, really, really good. Yeah. <laughs> I think when when, you know, when we were starting out, I think that if we encountered people that were really on the ball with like marketing and stuff like that, we, we looked at them as being like opportunistic, opportunistic and insincere and sort of, you know, future suits and more concerned about like business than art. And, um, the, the I think the thinking on that stuff has shifted a lot, which is, which is good. You know, you, you mentioned poor planning earlier or no planning or no planning. I get what you're saying, but I think that people who have like viable career options outside of music who don't plan um, or who, who have skill sets that would work well outside of music who don't plan, they maybe should reevaluate a bit. But, you know, so many of the people that I know, they found music through trauma and, you know, they have fucked up lives and going to college and, you know, becoming an executive somewhere or, you know, whatever, whatever kind of good paying straight job you know, might be out there for some people like that, that stuff was not out there for them. And when the option was like, Hey, people like this band, man, I could keep doing that. Or I can like go work some dead end job that my uncle gets me. You know, I think that they made the right call. Even if like that got them like 20 years of playing in a band and now they're, now they're having a bit of a tough time. I still think that's probably better than the other outcome that they could have come across. And I, I have like so much I totally agree. compassion for all of the freaks that I've met through playing in punk rock bands. And I come from a degree of that as well. So like I'm inspired by what those, those people have been able to create, even if, even if it was done without a plan for a, um, you know, long-term livelihood. That's kind of what I meant when I said that it, I think it's part of the artistic temperament. Yeah. I think that there are some people who they are the way that they are and they're designed to create art and they're not really designed to fit into normal society. And there's really no other option for them. It just is what it is. Yeah. That can be a fortunate or unfortunate thing. Like it just comes down to, I think the individual case, but I do think that there are people that are, they're designed to create. And that's it. Counterpoint would be that some of those people think that, yeah, like I said earlier, like they don't have to be good at anything else. Like, oh, well, I'm, you know, I was put here to play guitar. I don't, I don't, I shouldn't have to pay my taxes or I shouldn't have to be like faithful to my partner or I shouldn't have to put gas in my car or, or we know, we know whatever. Like these people create a lot of problems for themselves in life because sometimes they think that because they're good at creation that they don't have to do anything else. The laws of physics don't apply to me. We know a lot of people who have, um, you know, music like keeps you young, but it also keeps you from growing up. And I think it's a lot of people that don't quite know the difference sometimes. I would agree with you on that. One thing though, that I do think is that this new level of, I guess, awareness with, um, the younger generation of musicians. I feel like some people around our age have a lot of animosity towards it, but I think it's a great thing. Oh, it's awesome. That musicians are going into this with eyes open as compared to 20 years ago. I love it. I hope I'm not a fuddy-duddy <laughs> about things. I'm sure I'm a little bit of a Luddite when it comes to some recording techniques and whatnot, but I, I I'm really hope I'm not a fuddy-duddy with um, sort of having my eyes and 
ears and heart open to new ways of doing things, both like professionally and socially and artistically. I mean, do you feel set in your ways? I, I catch myself being set in my ways and I try to break out of it, but it's also like kind of impossible. Like I've been, you know, I opened this studio in 2003, right? And it's 2021 now. So I've been sitting in the same location for 18 years. I think I've had the same monitors for about 14. I've had the same console for about 11. So like for the last 11 years, like very little has changed in my creative environment in terms of like the recording gear. So I've been finding other ways to kick myself into finding different ways to be creative. And, you know, part of it is like having Zach here working with me now. He's like another engineer with other perspectives. And so that's been helpful. You know, I'm always trying to try out new mics yet. You're probably never going to find me miking toms with anything but a Justice and E22S, you know, and I'm probably always going to have a Shure Beta 91A and inside the kick drum. And so there's some things where I like I am set in my ways and I feel like that's, but I'm confident in that. I feel like it's a result of a lot of experimentation. You know, sometimes people do things like creatively because they just work. You know what I mean? Like Zildjian's cymbals yes. sound good. Gibson's into Marshall amps sound good. And, you know, you can spend years of your life trying to come up with a more unique sound and you'll get there. But like, is it going to be better for the kind of music? Maybe, maybe not. But, you know, like, like some Remo Emperor, some Zildjian cymbals, Gibson into a Marshall, like an SVT, like a U47. And like, you're good to go. Make, you can make a rock record right now. And so I think in some in some cases, it's good to be set in your ways if those ways are tried and true and have proven results. But it does get kind of boring sometimes. And it's important to, you know, even if your experiments don't yield better results, sometimes it's important just to like try things differently to force yourself to always use your ears rather than use your eyes or just use your muscle memory. Um, maybe it's get some new monitors. Maybe it's go travel and work in some other studios. Maybe it's some, you know, like in the case of the new Converge record, we brought in three other musicians to collaborate with. So, you know, it's, you've got to always like do some stuff to keep yourself on your toes if you've been doing things for a long time. It's one of those things too, that I think is, uh, is a fine line. Maybe it's just one of those things that requires experience to have the confidence to say this works. I'm doing it because I've decided that I like it. And that's, that's why it's my go-to not because I've stopped improving or have just like settled into a routine. I actually like this. That's why I do it. Yeah, totally. I think, um, I think the thing, one of the pitfalls that happen with a lot of people is they, when their abilities plateau, they try to like buy their way out of that plateau. I know I've, I've been guilty with that before. And so like, I'll, if I feel like my recordings aren't getting better, I'll just start buying gear, hoping that they'll <laughs> get better as a result of that. But it doesn't usually work, but sometimes like I'll buy something that maybe will just allow me to hear things in a different way. And if that happens, then it's a good result. I think we've all been guilty of that. I think, yeah, I think we've, we would all love to like have every dollar we've invested in gear ever in the bank right now and be able to start over. <laughs> Holy shit. I've heard people like, <laughs> I'm I, just, I was just, I was just thinking that through. I've heard a, a second. particular uh, pro audio dealer um, who's no longer in business fantasize about having a fire at their shop <laughs> so, so they could start over. <laughs> um, but uh, that, that didn't happen. Um, 
man, I feel like, so I feel two ways about it. I feel like on the one hand, I basically burned so much money on stupid ass gear. Yeah. Just like everybody else. But then on the other hand, I don't necessarily know if I really actually think it's that stupid because uh, if everyone I know that's gotten good has gone through that time period and still goes through those time periods like every now and again, maybe it's actually just part of it because it's part of the experimentation process. You're not going to know that it was a waste of money until after you actually tried it. For sure. I, I absolutely agree with that. I have a few thoughts on that. One, gear, especially pro audio gear, is so goddamn expensive right now that a lot of the stuff that I own, I would not be able to afford to buy again. One of the things I've been guilty of in the recording, in like my recording gear purchases, is getting a wide variety of gear. And that is one of my big regrets. I wish I, I wish I'd rather just said like, oh, that thing's good. It sounds like, like mic prees are bullshit within their like normal operating range. Like mic prees, just if you get a professional mic pre and you're not pushing it to its limits or you're not at like the extreme end of the noise floor, then like they don't really matter that much. Do I need like, mm -hmm. do I need like 30 different flavors of mic pre in the studio? Probably not. Like I could have three and just have more channels of each of them and be more happy. But to sell a bunch of stuff and then go buy a bunch of stuff at the price that that stuff is now just doesn't make any sense. So I'm I'm left with kind of a, a weird mishmash hodgepodge collection of uh, studio gear. That's one thing. I also, I started recording, I'm kind of the last generation that started recording on tape. So when I was starting out recording, I just had to buy a lot of channels of stuff. You know, I couldn't just like buy a plugin and then use multiple instances of it across the whole mix. I had to like buy a whole bunch of compressors. So like I had to buy cheap compressors for like, you know, the toms and cheap gates for the toms so that I could use the good stuff on the snare and the vocal. And, and I had to... You know, I would even sometimes gate stuff to tape because I didn't have enough gates to use on the mix. So if I gated like something on the way in, then I could use that same gate on something else on the way out. And same goes for like EQs and compressors and all that stuff too. Um, so just, I, you know, ended up amassing a lot of prosumer gear early in my career because that was all I could afford. And I had only a few nice pieces, you know. And if I were starting out now, then I would be, you know, I would have an all DAW based studio and then I would buy, you know, a few nice pieces of outboard gear for, you know, for the important tracks that I wouldn't have to have so many pieces of gear. So yeah, it's just a, just kind of a, a different approach to buying gear now than it was then. Yeah. So I do look at people who buy a bunch of, you know, like they'll buy like 24 of the same pre, but like they're not they're not quite there yet. Then I think to myself, they're skipping ahead. So it's it's weird. It's weird because I feel like part of the ending up with a hodgepodge of gear is it didn't happen overnight, right? Well, no. You want that while you're feeling out what you like. And then once you find what you like, then maybe you, maybe you dumb it down. Yeah. By the way, I completely agree with you about Mike Prees. Have tested it out various times when both in recording, but also when doing some of the courses that we've done, we're trying to answer the question, like how much does it actually matter? 
No, you move move a microphone a quarter of an inch makes a bigger difference than like an API versus a Neve. Makes the biggest difference. I mean, they're going to saturate in different ways if you're like really pushing stuff and and you know different pre's have different levels of self noise and you know Im- impedance matters and you know they matter but like as long as you're working with something professional it really doesn't. Oh, and also just a helpful tip if you're ever comparing like A being like preamps, you have to do it either like record separate passes. Or you have to use like a transformer isolated uh, splitter box because the uh, input transformers of microphone preamps will influence each other if you use just sort of a basic kind of Y jack type of configuration to AB mic pre's. Well, the thing about it mattering is, yeah, it it all matters because it all affects it to some degree. I just think that sometimes the severity of how much it affects it isn't as great as marketing would lead you to believe. They've got different flavors, but how intense are those flavors? Yeah, I remember, like, I forget the name of the brand. I don't think the brand is around anymore, but someone lent me this, like, four-channel mic pre. The marketing speak around it was, was like, you know, this is the you know greatest mic preamp of all time. And the uh, I felt like it gave me these really Albini-esque tones on my toms. And I was like, oh, so it sounds like a stock Neotech mic pre? Like, is that what you're... <laughs> like an IC-based stock Neotech mic pre? Which are great. <laughs> but but like, you know, it's still like, it's like the just the, the built-in mic pre in the console. It's, it's He's not using anything fancy for that, whatever the comparison is. Yeah, but I think lots of people that read and believe marketing material, they don't know those finer details. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's a well-constructed mic preamp, but like, is it different? Does the world need another like $800 a channel, like transformer based discrete mic preamp? Like, is it going to be different? Probably not. But you know, okay. That being said, now that I'm someone who like makes guitar pedals, like does the world need another distortion pedal? No. But like, do I want to give the world another distortion pedal? Yes. So, like, it could just be that this is how the designer of this product, you know, or the marketing team on behind this product, that's, like, how they get excited about things. And so that's great for them, too. But let's be honest. It's just a mic pre. Okay. So on the topic of does the world need another distortion pedal or another overdrive? Okay. So, yeah, the answer is probably not. But am I going to give them one? Yep. And I'm sure that you believe that there's something really cool about what yours does that hasn't happened before. I do. Yeah. Okay. Isn't that valid in and of itself? Yeah, it is to me, but to the user, like, is that valid? Like, like, um, it might be that there's some, like something in this, these mic preamp topologies, that's a little bit different than what, you know, the classics have done, or maybe it's more economical or maybe, you know, something, maybe it's surface matter, whatever the difference is. As a designer of pedals, I can get excited about that stuff. But as a user of a pedal or a user of a mic pre, like, does it matter? I don't know. I know I'm not really uh, <laughs> selling my pedals all that well right now. I think it matters. But yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm not the, the user of these things. Or I'm, I am the user, but I'm not. I'm the user designer. Yeah, you're not your own customer. Yeah, and th- and that's really why I I do it is because I'm building tools for me to use in my studio, and I feel like these tools win the shootouts in my studio. You know, with my with in terms of like nailing the sound that I'm hearing in my head using 
the equipment that I have here and how I set it up, the pedals that I'm making are nailing that stuff for me. And I'm happy when they nail it for anybody else, but um, I'm, I'm building that stuff for me more than anybody else. So that's what a lot of the people who I know who have designed audio products, that seems to be the common mentality is I'm creating something that hasn't existed for me that I wish did exist. And it might only be 2% different than this other thing that's widely used, but I feel like I need to get this other thing to bend over backwards to do what I want, where this thing that I created just does what I want. Yeah. And so much of that is just like, well, we're just going to put two different things in one box together. I feel like half my ideas for pro pro audio products are that it's just like, let's put, let's put like a GML and a Poltec in a box together or, you know, something like that. Like, I don't think anybody has ever done that. Um, you know, that, that kind of stuff. But I think that's valid. Yeah, totally. It's also easy to dismiss though. Cause then someone would be like, well, what's different about that? It's just a Poltec and a GML in a box together. How is that any different? I could just link to them together. Well, you could. <laughs> yeah. I think that argument's valid too. I feel like people say that too. Why do I need to get this course, I could find all the info in it in like a hundred different YouTube videos. True. And my answer is like, well, yeah, but uh, those, those YouTube videos didn't put it together this way. Well, I think also the, what you're doing is these courses are being presented by people whose work is respected by the people watching it where rather than like just somebody that's, you know, better known as like a, you know, a YouTube a YouTuber than as an engineer. Yeah, for sure. But still, like, uh, if you want to learn what an attack time is on a compressor, that technical information is pretty much the same anywhere, right? Or how to set up a guitar, you know, that kind of stuff. You could find it all yourself if you really wanted to. Uh, just like you could link those two pieces of gear together if you wanted to. But uh, when someone that has a vision for, I guess, how these two pieces of gear should work together or how this information should be presented in a way that will make sense for other people. Yeah, it's a more holistic approach. Yeah, I think that's that's the value. Absolutely. With the pedals, I guess, you know, that brings up the question, what is it that you are trying to do that you haven't found in other pedals? Well, I guess the answer to that is different for each pedal. One thing that's important to me is that I'm not cloning anything. Nothing that I've done has been incredibly original from a circuit topology standpoint, but also nothing, nothing that I've done has been a clone of something else. Um, you know, pedal ethics obviously are very weird and they're different to different people. But for, for me, like I, I would never clone anything. And I certainly wouldn't clone anything that was still in production or something that was being made by a small, a small builder. I don't know. I mean, I could, I could kind of like walk through, well, I'll, I'll tell you about a few of the things that I do. Yeah. T tell me about a few. Well, one thing that I did that really took off for me in 2020 as a result of quarantine was the, uh, the DIY side of my pedal business. And so where the pedal side of my business actually started was if you're not familiar with, with this, um, business card distortion pedal. I remember that. That was so cool. The idea came to me when we were at NAMM together. I thought like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if I had, because, you know, everyone's got like cool business cards there, right? Like electrical guitar company had this like thing that's basically like a razor blade that was their business card. And I told you not to give me one. Remember that? Because I wasn't going to actually, <laughs> Yeah, I like I thought that. it was awesome, 
but you had a limited amount. Yeah. And I wasn't going to actually use it. Well, I didn't think it would be popular at first. Like, you know, the thing kind of, it actually like went to viral on all these design blogs and like all these people wanted it. I originally only made a hundred and I figured it would take me like six months to get rid of them. And I would just like hand them out to friends or people at shows. But then all these people in faraway places wanted them. So I started charging a small, small fee for them and shipping them. And I've, you know, since sold thousands of them. But anyway, so so just for people who don't know, it's called the Brutalist Junior. And it's a, looks like a business card, but it's a PCB that you can build your own distortion pedal on. And the pedal, is sort of loosely based on the Providence SNMP distortion pedal that I used a lot in the early 2000s on, on Converge Records. And that pedal is sort of inspired by kind of a hybrid of a, a rat and a tube screamer, and uh, but with a Baxendahl, an active Baxendahl EQ. Uh, so anyway, my pedal doesn't have the back, so it just has a passive EQ. That whole thing kind of took off, and that's one thing that kind of got me. Uh, that was designed by my friend Nick Williams, who does Dunwich Amps. And that got me sort of into building pedals and eventually designing pedals. And um, I started making started making all kinds of stuff. So the DIY thing kind of really took off during quarantine. And I, I came out with a whole bunch of different circuit boards, just mostly distortions and EQs and boosts, but things that I intended as sort of building blocks for making these big super pedals. Like you could have a multi-channel pedal that had like a mid boost followed by like a, you know, like an op amp style overdrive followed by like a, you know, like a, a semi-parametric EQ or, you know, something That's like ambitious. that. You can do all sorts of different cool things. And and with the, the build guides that I made for these DIY uh, PCBs, like I would make a lot of suggestions on what you could do to modify them. And like, you know, if you do this, if you change this value, it'll do this and so forth and so on. And people have made all kinds of really awesome creations with them and they've you know done a whole bunch of cool things with artwork and you know i think especially for the people that had some extra time on their hands during quarantine it became a really engaging thing for them to um to do during that time and, and a, a new way to be creative and i think that that is really super awesome and I'm, I'm really happy that i was able to like encourage some other people's creativities but beyond the diy products that I do. I also put out a bunch of assembled pedals that I'd say one that I'm most probably most known for and my most popular product at this point is called um, Jugendstil, which is a fuzz pedal that, you know, it's a highly refined fuzz pedal, but it's uses two bipolar junction transistors like a fuzz face would do, but it's, it's different values and kind of slightly different topology than a fuzz face and set up for really high gain operation. But then following that fuzz circuit is a tone stack that's inspired by the Boss HM2 EQ circuit. So not the distortion stage of the HM2, but just the EQ stage. And the way that it's wired is as a parallel blend. So it's one knob that, you know, fully counterclockwise is no EQ and it's just like a brutal heavy fuzz and then fully clockwise uh, blends in the um, fully maxed out Boss HM2 EQ circuit. And then there's also an additional knob that gives you a little bit of mid-sweep that allows you to change the the center frequency of the mid-band of the HM2 EQ. The HM2 is actually a three-band EQ, but it, um, if you if you get the original pedal, there's two knobs. There's a high and a low knob, but the high knob actually controls um, two EQ bands at the same time. So it's actually like a three-band circuit. So this that sweep knob on the Jugendstil gives you a little bit of um, adjustability over the mid-range center frequency, which I find based on what you tune your guitar to, you may want to um, to 
turn that knob to reinforce the fundamental frequency of whatever the key of open is. So, you know, that's basically what I was talking about earlier with sort of novel novel pro audio gear where it's uh, kind of two ideas that already exist but mm-hmm. cobbled together into one box and then, you know, modified and refined and tweaked um, to to my ear. And so it's, um, it's like a super brutal pedal, but it's, and it gets you some of those HM2 style tones, but in a different way than an HM2 would sound. Um, and, uh, it can be doomier or it can be sharper depending on how you set it. Um, I think that I went on a run in the late 2000s to early 2010s of doing a lot of, of recording a lot of bands that use the HM2 guitar sound and it sort of, I kind of became known for that. And I realized that it was important to me for each band that used that pedal to still have their own distinct personality. So I started going out of my way to use different amps or different mics or different settings or even, you know, starting using the different, the different clones of HM2s that were coming out and, you know, finding ways to set each band apart from themselves. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like if you listen to, you know, I'd say the three best known bands of that style that I've, that I've worked with, or the four best known bands would be like Disfear, Trap Them, Nails, and Black Breath. And I don't think that you know, while, while there may be some commonalities in those records, I don't think that any of those records sound the same as each other. And um, I think that that is due to like a conscious decision on my part and also on the band's parts to make sure that they don't sound the same as each other. Um, and so in my, the design work that I've done on various HM2 pedals, like, you know, particularly the Ugin Steel, um, I, I've tried to find new ways to get that HM2 sound. And that's sort of been furthering that path that I started on when working with those bands in the studio. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. it's a, It looks like a brutal pedal. It is a brutal pedal. <laughs> and then <laughs> I, the other, the next thing that I have coming out, oh, this will be the last one I talk about, but the, the next thing I have coming out is um, a really awesome, not glamorous pedal uh, called the OGR, which stands for Optical Gain Reduction. That one was designed in collaboration with John Snyder, who has his own pedal company called Electronic Audio Experiments, which make amazing stuff too. John's John's a uh, it's he's Doctor John, so he actually knows what he's doing, as opposed to like hacks like me who just kind of like <laughs> stick things together until sound comes out. Sold out already. <laughs> so nice. John, oh, you can steal this? Oh no, OGR. No, oh, no. OGR. OGR is yeah. no that. So I have a batch in production right now. Okay, I'm expecting them within the next few weeks, so they'll be back in stock. I just I just leave some stuff that's sold out, parked on my on my site, so that people can um, can see what it is and like and read about it a little bit and, and, and listen to Makes sense. The demos. But yeah, it's a it's just like a super good sounding optical compressor with uh, with a Baxendahl EQ to help compensate for any kind of subtle signal loss that happens as a result of of gain reduction and it's you know one of the few guitar pedals that also has a really nice functioning gain reduction meter which as a recording engineer i find helpful and it's really just it actually works really good as sort of a almost like a preamp it's really good for mating a guitar or a bass to an amp making sure that like the gain feeding the front end of the amp is what the amp likes to likes to hear and and you've got a little bit of eq flexibility if like the amp wants to hear like a little bit brighter or a little bit darker an instrument and it, it really just adds a lot of um 
polish, especially to bass tones. And we use it just constantly here. And I've even used it a bit um, as an outboard compressor for mixing. And we may at some point try to pursue a 500 series version of it because I think it's pr it's pretty useful as a compressor. And, you know, there's not a lot of... Uh, I guess here's another two two products in one box thing, but there's not a lot of studio compressors that also have EQs built in, especially EQs that are useful in like, you know, compensating for any compression artifacts. Now, granted, this is not like a very artifacty compressor, but there's always a bit of like tonal change that happens when you squeeze the signal down. See, with you describing everything that all these do, I really do think that that answers the question from earlier of does anyone need this stuff? I do feel like you answered the question. Yeah, I mean, do we do we need it? I mean, we'd we'd be able to make records without it. Do we need anything? <laughs> yeah. You know? Do do we need anything? Yeah. Do we need everything? Yes. Exactly. I think that the story behind you doing this with the business card is super fucking cool. Thanks. Total accident. But it's it's a cool kind of accident, and it just I think about Nam and how many times. I've been handed cards that just, uh, they don't mean anything and don't lead to anything. And uh, I just I just think it's really cool that this is one of the only business cards that I remember out of, you know, 20 years of going to NAMM. And it actually turned into something. There was two that I remember from that year. There was Electrical Guitar Company one that was basically like a Coke razor. And um, like it was... <laughs> Literally like a dangerous business card. <laughs> and then uh, Zach Vex, he didn't really have a particularly interesting business card, but what he was doing was he had he had some sort of, I think it was a Fuji. It was some kind of like Polaroid-esque camera that took photos that were, um, the photos were business card sized. And he had like a reel of like double stick tape. And if he met you, he would take your picture, he'd get a piece of double stick tape, stick it on the back of the picture, and then stick it on the back of your business card. So he would remember people, uh, you know, what people looked like. And so he could kind of put a name and a face together for after Nam. I'm sure this came from years of Naming. He was also dressed like Jack Sparrow that year. Um, <laughs> he's, a, he's, a, he's a cool freak. I'm looking through the site right now. I don't want to take up your entire afternoon, but I do want to, I do want to hear about the guitars. Okay. Yeah. And the reason I want to talk about the guitars, other than the fact that there's a whole lot more of them. You've made more guitars than I realize, A. But uh, B, it's another thing is, does the world need another boutique guitar maker? And the reason I'm bringing that up, and I'd like to talk about that, is because I'm sure you've been given or tried out boutique guitars that are highly talked about, and you try them, and they're just pieces of shit, really fancy-looking pieces of shit and like some factory ESP would be better. Uh, and, or like, you know, a Mexican strat would be better, but these are like $5,000, super beautiful looking guitars that everybody nerdy is going nuts over. And I feel like I've seen that so many times in the boutique world that it makes me pretty skeptical of, do we need another guitar, uh, especially another boutique guitar. That said, why are you making guitars and what is it that you were trying to find that wasn't out there? There's a lot to unpack there. You know what I'll say first is, do we need another band? No. Like, 
we don't. No, we don't need a new anything, really. We don't need. That's the that's the thing is, do we, you know? So it's kind of like the question's kind of, kind of futile. Like I think I think yes, we do in the fact that people always need to create. People always need something new. People like I mean, I guess I'd probably be happy listening to Led Zeppelin and Slayer for the rest of my life. But like <laughs> every like new generation needs new shit and every new generation needs to express themselves like and part of doing that is like creating new stuff. Part of doing that is like mining the past for stuff that was forgotten about, you know. So in that sense, yeah, we do. We do need we need do need new and different stuff and new takes on old things and radically different takes on old things. I think guitar players in general are usually pretty conservative with what they're willing to um, to try out. Like people people balk at um, super innovative guitars a lot. Like, you know, people always think like, well, a lot of people of my generation think that any like seven string or eight string or multi-scale guitar is corny. And, you know, I'm kind of with them, but like I, I think that those things are awesome because they are built for a specific purpose that I won't use them for, but they are definitely built for purpose and perform well you know actually interesting part of the backstory for me that where this ties in is uh, with parker guitars you know like i you know like i mentioned before my dad's a, a kind of a creative guy he's a machinist by trade and he actually his shop was um before parker was acquired i think by Perswile, maybe or maybe it's washburn I, I don't remember but when parker was still sort of made in Wilmington, Massachusetts. My dad's shop was right across the street from them. And, you know, he became friends with Ken Parker and Larry Fishman, who was running the company. And he helped them out with building a bunch of the manufacturing tooling and with, you know, figuring out how to digitize and build the um, the shapes that Ken had carved on a, on a CNC milling machine. And so I kind of had some visibility to these, like these weird futuristic guitars from an early age. It was an interesting guitar because like, the way that it was designed to sound was more for like the blues player. Whereas like the way that it looked was for more like the Power Man 5000 fan. Or something. So it was a weird, like really niche kind of, kind of market that those things, you know, I guess didn't quite like tap into as much as they had yep. hoped, but it was, it was cool for me to see that and to see that kind of production. I think like it was around the time when I was like 18 or so, I think was when my dad was helping them out. And the very first guitar that I ever built myself was built from a um, discarded body blank that Ken gave me that they weren't going to use for a Parker. And uh, so that, that, that's kind of one thing that set me on the path to guitar building. And then my dad's going to keep factoring into my, my story. <laughs> Anytime anything building something comes up, I guess the next guitar building phase for me was about 10 or so years ago. I had a slow summer at my studio, which, which was kind of unusual. And my dad also had a slow summer at his shop, which was unusual. And around the same time, uh, some friends of mine had been asking me to help them spec and build some parts guitars, like Warmoth type stuff, which I had, which I had done before. And so I, um, and I got to thinking like, actually, it wouldn't be that hard for me to just like build some slab bodies and some pick guards and have like my own guitar shape and then, because um, I had had a few uh, experiences with First Act at that point where I had custom guitars from First Act. And I had, um, in one case, designed the shape of that First Act custom guitar myself. So I kind of got into it doing that. So I, I was thinking like, yeah, maybe I could just like design some of my own bodies, my own pick guards, and then build them. I, I knew how to use um, SolidWorks, uh, which is like a, a CAD package. I uh, knew how to use that from my my previous 
job as a biomedical engineer. So I did the design work digitally, you know, built some guitar bodies and some pickguards on my dad's milling machine and ordered necks from Warmoth and then cut out the headstock shape. And then, you know, GCI is launched and um, built about, I don't know, 30 or 40 guitars, mostly for friends, myself, just kind of painting them in the basement. And, you know, I learned how to do setup work. And it really like that process made me realize how diverse people's tastes are and how much taste is in the eye of the beholder and how like what the what the right scale length and pickup choice for me is completely wrong for someone else. And I think I got a lot less picky about guitars and I got more open to other guitar sounds and and other guitar setups and pickup types and all that kind of stuff. And that actually helped me quite a bit in my studio work, I think, because I became much more knowledgeable and open to all these other kind of sounds and stuff. So so yeah, so that's how I built the first batch. And then, um, you know, s- sort of things heated, heated back up at my dad's shop and at the studio. So I wasn't able to do as much building on my own. But First Act around that time had closed their custom shop and, and John McGuire, their former head luthier, um, started out on his own business. And I had him do some contract manufacturing for me for a little while, um, made about 20 guitars with him. And then um, he wasn't able to continue to do that. Then I was sort of like left searching for a uh, contract manufacturer and the studio got busy and I didn't really like pursue it all that hard for a while. And I had a few false starts with other builders. And then I found Keystone Music, who I've been working with in the past couple of years now. And they've been really great at um, getting my guitars manufactured in South Korea at a, um, it's not like one of the big factories, like where Reverend and stuff is made. It's like a small, small shop. I think there's about nine people there and they are... You know, some of them are like USA, like Roberto Venn type trained luthiers, and they're, mm-hmm. they're sourcing their wood from all over the world. And, um, you know, there's there's a mix of, of uh, CNC work and, um, and hand work. A lot of the precision stuff is done CNC, and then the rest is done by hand by really skilled luthiers. And, like, the quality is, um, is incredible, and I'm really excited to be offering – these, you know, super pro, really well set up, well balanced guitars at a pretty reasonable price. So if I, if I, you know, if I move towards like using a dealer network, I'm going to have to raise the prices at some, some point, but just for now it's small enough that I can still manage selling stuff direct and it's, it's working out really well. And I think I'm able to, um, I think I'm able to offer a really amazing guitar at a really amazing price point. And, you know, there's other companies doing that. Like you said, like, you know, LTDs are actually pretty good and, and Mexican strats are actually really good. Um, but I think the stuff that I'm doing, like for, for people that are craving something a little bit more unique, I think it's, it's going to work. My guitars are going to work really well for them. And I'm, I'm bringing back some of the earlier shapes that I had from back when I was building at my dad's shop. And I'm also um, adding bases and hopefully baritones in the near future to the lineup. So things, things are growing. It's impressive. Yeah. I just wanted to comment on something you said earlier about how, you know, boutique guitar might be a piece of junk. Expensive piece of junk. Expensive piece of junk. And like a inexpensive, like, you know, made in Mexico strat might be amazing. And I think part of that is like, sometimes that's a result of the buying power of big businesses that, you know, a boutique company might be getting, might be sourcing their wood someplace different every time. And they don't have mm-hmm. the storage facilities to have the wood at really good humidity and temperature controls. And also like as an engineer by trade, I can say with certainty that CNC is awesome and you can build really good stuff 
in China now. You can build really good stuff in Mexico now because they're building the stuff CNC. You know, they might not be doing the nicest finishes and they might not have the greatest setup work, but the quality of the woodworking and the precision of the fit now that like stuff is being built CNC is it's really good and it's really reliable. And you, you know, with a few component upgrades, you can like make that stuff into a really great instrument. I think that the perception is different than the reality because of how things were, I think, at one point in time. Absolutely. I think where things still are different is in the metallurgy. So there is like a noticeable difference between like, you know, made in USA metal parts and made in, made in Europe metal parts than, than some of the Asian parts, especially like the lower cost generic Asian parts that get used on on lower cost guitars. So, you know, some, some of that stuff is like more prone to pitting or like, I like a lot of like the licensed Floyd roses are terrible. The knife edge on them gets dull really quickly. And then just starts sort of like clicking into different positions that you don't want to go. And it doesn't hold tune. Whereas like the, you know, the real Floyds don't have those problems. Yeah. I know what you're saying too, about how there's a massive buying power when you have a company like Fender and they can afford to have everything be consistent. But it just is what it is when it comes to that consistency. I think that at the end of the day, that's not the player's fault, right? That's not the player is just going to have to deal with the reality of that situation. It's up to them if they want to take the risk, I guess. Looking at your guitars, by the way, I appreciate how classy they are. Like, I like classy classic looking guitars. Uh, even though I play Iceman's, I'm actually not that into pointy guitars. Uh, I really do like guitars that look like guitars, I guess. I appreciate the aesthetic. Yeah, I like that too. I mean, I, I recognize that I'm a bit conservative in my styling and that like, you know, it's all pretty much informed by the classic American guitars and also like the classic like Matsumoku and uh, Fujijin type Japanese guitars. But that's, you know, that's what I like. I'm very respectful of uh, modern guitars like Strandbergs and stuff like that. Um, but that, those are like almost like different instruments to me. Yep, I agree. Like with the, <laughs> with like the, the neck profile that those things have. I feel like I'm like trying to play a Chapman stick or something. You know, like, like, like someone who's a musician, they can sort of like pick up any instrument and like make some sort of sound out of it. You know what I mean? Like I can pick up like a <laughs> glockenspiel or some handbells or I like- I know exactly what you're or saying. Or like a xylophone at things. my kid's playground or, you know, something like, you know, like I'll find a way to make music out of it. I kind of feel that way when I pick up one of those guitars. I'm like, whoa, this is something, this isn't what I play. This is some other instrument. And it's like, it's really cool, but it's some, it's some other type of instrument. You know what you want out of a guitar. Yeah. Which informs what you're doing. I'm looking right now. At yeah. I mean, it's about sound, but it's also all about balance. You know, like there's a lot of little subtle things about my guitar designs. Like, like the only ones that are on my site right now, I think are the Craftsman series one and series two. And um, the series one is, is actually a chambered guitar. So I chose some like ultra light tuning pegs for that one. Whereas the series two, which is a solid body guitar with two pickups that has some heavier tuning pegs, which influence the, the neck dive of the guitar. And they're both really, really well balanced guitars as a result of just, you know, subtle choices like that. And I think that that kind of attention to detail is really important. I'm looking at the Craftsman one right now. I really actually like the one pickup. I've been known to remove 
the neck pickup on some guitars that I just wanted for a specific purpose. Uh, I pre I appreciate that kind of like what you said about seven strings that like them or not, they, they do what they do. They're, they're purpose built and they work really well for that. Yes. You know what I hate is when a band has two guitar players and one of them has like a baritone and the other one has like, <laughs> like a 24 and a half uh, scale seven string or something like that. And they're tuned the same, but the, the tension on the strings is so radically different that they'll never be able to play in tune together. What I've seen is that that's usually a communication breakdown between guitar players. Yes. Two strong headed individuals that they can't pick a direction. With something like that, I would just be like, all right, guys, I've got this Evertune over here. Let's have both of you play the guitar with the Evertune in it, and we'll keep it in tune. So you're not anti-Evertune? No, I'm not anti-anything. I'm glad to hear you say that. I hate playing them. I don't think they're fun, but, like, there's definitely a time when I feel like it's necessary and it's super helpful to play one. I have uh, a Balaguer in here with, with an Evertune on it. You know, I it gets used once every few months when... There's a specific need for it. I don't enjoy playing it, but yeah, it is it is necessary. What a great invention, though. We've had a lot of conversations where you've like informed me about like various recording techniques people are using these days, and I'm just like, holy shit! What? A, really? Why? This is wild. I feel that way about Evertunes. Yeah. Yeah, like like the whole like, you know, replacing the low end of a bass guitar with like Sub Destroyer or like oh yeah, like that seems totally foreign to me. But I actually I remember you telling me about how a lot of the records that you did. You would record drums last? Yeah, that's started to do that towards the end, yeah. Yeah, I always thought that was insane. And then the new Converge record, that's basically what we had to do. It's not so insane. It's just not the way things were, you know, traditionally done. But it's it's weird that, like, I used to think it was super insane, too, until the first time that it made perfect sense. There's scenarios where it doesn't make sense, right? But there's so many logical uses or logical scenarios where doing drums last makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's interesting. The order of recording instruments is really interesting because, like, whoever goes first kind of sets the pace, not necessarily the tempo, but they sort of set the tone or set the pace. And then the, the people after that are kind of beholden to whatever happened before them. However, they also have the benefit that they have a more complete picture of what the song is. Um, so I've recorded plenty of bands who like did their own pre-production and then came in with like full demos of songs. And then we would just kind of gradually replace instruments one at a time. So like, you know, the drummer might, the drummer might be recording first, but they're recording to the full production of demo guitars, bass and vocals and whatever else there is, um, which is great for them versus just like a sloppily played scratch guitar, which is kind of what, what usually happens around here. You can't fuck around with drum performances, right? Like the way that a drummer plays affects the way that the drums sound so much that uh, I feel like in some scenarios, you're doing the drummer and the drums a disservice by making them go first because if the song is going to change, like if if it's not in its final form when they first arrive... And yeah, I know that some drummers are good enough to just make changes on the spot. A lot of them are, but, uh, but the benefit of having time with those changes and to really, really work on those parts, I think goes a really long way with a lot of drummers. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting also like 
observing, I don't know why this just clicked in my head, but I've noticed a lot of bands have recorded, um, like sometimes you think a drummer's like really good and then you start recording them and you realize like, oh, they're good, but they're actually, it's more that they're just really well rehearsed. Yes. And then you throw a curveball at them and they kind of fall apart. Surprising, but yeah. Yeah, the really special drummers that I've worked with are people that you can suggest a change and they can just go play it. It might take them a take or two, but they don't have a mental breakdown, still know how to play drums and they can compensate for a new idea that gets thrown at them. You know, and I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm in, I'm in a band with somebody like that and not, not, not someone who has to just play what they've drilled endlessly. Yeah. The drummer in my band was like that too. He could change on the fly and be just as, just as great. But I, I've definitely been in scenarios where you think that this drummer is great. All the hype surrounding this drummer is that this drummer is great. And when they're playing something they rehearsed, they're great. And you just ask for the fill that opens the song to be slightly different and hell ensues. Yeah, it's insane. You know, and then that person spends so much time and energy and drumhead life um, trying to learn that part. And it's just like a big time sponge and it's counterproductive. Like my friend Jared um, Shavelson, who's... He's in a million bands and he does like studio drum work and stuff. Right now he's playing with the Bronx, but I mean, he's a great drummer, but like the thing that makes him really great is he's got a really great memory where like you can suggest all sorts of changes or you can like play him a song a couple of times and he'll get it right away. Like he doesn't have to spend time learning the song. He can just go play the song so he can give it his all every time he plays it because he's not like, you know, half-assing it while he learns it. Yep. Makes a huge, huge difference. Yeah, it's awesome. I feel like, we just made the case for uh, recording drums last. What was the scenario where you first tried it? Well, so this Converge record was. So the way... Um, okay, so that was the first time. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure if I'll continue to do it because it's... You know, I really always pull a band when that I'm recording on what they want to do. But if a band was down to do things this way, I definitely would. It's a little bit more effort up front. But the way things went down with this Converge record was um, we were scheduled to start recording drums April 2020. And we all know what happened around that time period. You know, everybody went into lockdown. Our drummer, like I live in Salem, Massachusetts, our drummer lives in California. So, you know, he couldn't come out. And then all of the studio projects that I had booked after that all got postponed while people were figuring out what was happening. And um, so I was left with nothing to do and all this studio time booked for my own band to start recording. So I was like, okay, well, I guess we've got all these demos. I will just go tempo map all the demos because the for me the the worst thing in the world is a remote con, a remote recording session where everything is at one static tempo for the entire song like i don't i definitely don't ever want that so i went back to our demos and i like tempo mapped his performances at practice and you know kind of idealized him a little bit mm -hmm. and then i programmed all of his drum parts that he that he played when we were writing the songs and just started tracking guitars to the program drums we started writing some more songs with programmed drums, like that one, that song, that song Coil that we were talking about earlier that Steve kind of rebuilt from my idea. Like that was something that he and I went back and forth on some drum programming in order to do that. And then you know, eventually like we came up with the, um, the album and we, we had recorded basically all the guitars, uh, most of the keyboards, I think a little bit of the vocals, before, like, before Ben was able to come out, was cleared to travel and to come out and record drums. So he had like a pretty 
complete picture of all the songs. And, you know, we made a few arrangement changes after, after the fact. Um, and then we did track bass and the remainder of the vocals after drums were done. So it wasn't, it wasn't completely drums last, but it was definitely, it, guitars were basically done aside from a couple of overdubs, um, which was, which was new for me, but it was, I think it was cool. It ended up working out really well. It definitely influenced this record and made it something that it wouldn't have been had it not been for quarantine. When I went and checked it out, I was very surprised by what I heard. It's not the average Converge record. And every song's different, too. I think the two songs that we've, sort of two singles we've released so far are sort of similar to each other. And then there's a lot more left turns on the record that people haven't heard yet. They've got a similar kind of vibe. Like, they sound like they were part of the same collection. It's not what I was expecting. And also, I think it's cool to hear how many modern compositional techniques and recording techniques and just modern stuff you guys are not afraid to use. Yeah, I mean, this all Ben Chisholm, uh, one of the collaborators, he's, you know, plays the Chelsea Wolf. Um, he did all sorts of electronic stuff and some songwriting as well and um, played a lot of keyboards as well. And he really brought like a sort of a sound designer perspective to the music, which was new for us. Do you think uh, quarantine was... I guess, not trying to make it a loaded question, but I guess, do you think artistically it was kind of a blessing? Yeah, I mean, obviously we don't want to call it a blessing, but it... No, yeah, that's why I paused for a second. There's always opportunity in adversity. Whenever the rules get thrown out the window, and quarantine definitely threw the rules out the window, certainly threw the schedule out the window, there's an opportunity there. So I think we used the time that we had productively. I'm happy with the results that came from it. Honestly, when it all went down, that's what I was just hoping my uh, my friends were all going to do is use it productively because I knew at some point it was going to end. You must have seen like an uptick in URM um, members at that point because, yes. I mean, I know probably any recording engineer can relate to this. Like the first month of quarantine, I got like a bazillion emails, phone calls, text messages that were essentially, Kurt, how do I record myself and can you mix it? What do I need to get to record myself? And then I would give people advice and then they would ignore all of it. <laughs> of <course. laughs> I, I Honestly, I got to the point where I was just like, just go do what you're going to do. Like, you're not going to listen to me anyway. Anything I'm going to suggest to you is going to be too expensive or too, or require too much effort. So just go do whatever you're going to do. Yes, that happened for sure, which is the opposite of how we were expecting it to go. We were prepared for a really scary situation, but it ended up being the, the opposite. And I did see a whole range of reactions, though. I definitely saw what you just said, which is lots of people suddenly wanting to, to like, learn how to record really, really well in about, um, like, a matter of weeks. There was also people who froze completely, didn't do anything. There were people that just took it as a, they didn't really decide we're going to make an album or anything like that. It was just, we're going to just take this time to do stuff and whatever comes of it, comes of it. Like I, I saw all kinds of reactions, but by, by and large, most people I know uh, 
were very, very productive during the break. Yeah, I loved seeing how people's skills were leveling up. Like, you know, so many people were like learning video editing, like everybody got better at cooking. People started building guitar pedals. What really frustrated me was seeing some people that felt like, oh, I'll never be able to learn that. And it is, you know, you start like thinking about learning how to record music, like even just like learning how to use a DAW, it seems really daunting. You know, I, I didn't like seeing the people that like weren't really willing to try because they felt like they weren't capable of learning it. But I did, you know, love seeing all the skills that that were improved upon. Also like life skills too, like a lot of people who were just accustomed to being on the road and like putting off all kinds of like adult <laughs> shit that were kind of forced to, uh, to get adult. And I think it was good for a lot of people. I completely agree. And on the topic of learning a DAW, it is daunting, uh, especially if you're trying to learn 100% of what it can do. I threaten to change DAWs all the time. Like usually like once a year, I have a Mac and I use Pro Tools. And, you know, as we know, Apple and Avid are not always like, you know, they make decisions that don't always seem like customer friendly. I get frustrated and I'm like, all right, I'm switching to PC. I'm getting Cubase or whatever. And I, then I start going down that path and I'm just like, Ugh. But if I do that, I got to get all this other stuff and I got to learn it. It's going to take so much time. And I'm, and I'm just like, oh, all right, I'll pay the, I'll pay Avid's ransom one more time. Maybe I'll switch next time. And then I don't. Were you scared off from doing it or was it more just my workflow is, is like so dialed at this point? It's both, you know, like I don't, we can talk about details about stuff, but there's like the integration with devices, with being on the Mac OS platform versus Windows, I think would be hard for me to leave behind. I've got iMessage on my desktop and people are like sending me files that way all the time. And like, sure. I mean, I can, I can ask people to use like, like WhatsApp or, you know, other like, you know, desktop messaging apps for, for Windows, but like they'd rather just text me and they're all on iPhones too. And like now I'm the weirdo who's like shit doesn't show up in a group chat because I'm on an Android. And like, and this is just, I mean, no judgment about to anybody who does anything differently. But for me, um, you know, that, that, that Apple world is so dialed. And now that I'm thinking about like the future of recording and like maybe Atmos being a part of that, it seems like the Atmos world seems pretty biased towards Pro Tools as well. When it comes time, when it comes to like actually, I mean, I don't know that much about it yet, but it's it it does seem like Pro Tools is the DAW of choice for that. And I don't know a bunch of reasons. I'm also like, you know, I have like Burl converters and that uses DigiLink. So if I get something else, then I got to get a different like motherboard for that thing and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah it's like, sounds like a gigantic pain in the ass. If I make one change, then it's just like whole cascading thing, like series of things. I need to change. And also all my plugin authorizations and like a bunch of plugins aren't going to work anymore. And then like, blah, 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 blah. It's just like, oh my God, like, do I... Is it really worth it? That's a good question. Probably not. Like maybe in the long run. I don't know. I mean, Mac Pros are really expensive. I'm going to have to buy one of those eventually. I don't want to do a Hackintosh. Like I don't have the, the patience to always be like updating that stuff. I feel like it's one of those things that like if the actual need came up uh, where it made really good sense, you'd figure it out. Yeah, exactly. I'm just going to bitch and moan about it for now. <laughs> I think that there is a benefit in learning different platforms, but at the same time, I think there's just as much benefit in getting really good at what you have decided to use. I think that's the most 
most important thing. And also, what are you going to spend your time on? I think you should always be asking yourself that question. Well, that's the thing. Now that I have a family, I have like literally zero time. I'm forced to delegate things now, but like, I feel like there's always a huge list of things to do in front of me and the indulgence of like switching DOS to save a few bucks on a computer um, isn't really that high on the priority list. Maybe it will be at some point, but uh, yeah. anyways, Kurt, uh, I think it's a good place to end the episode. I want to thank you for taking the time. Yeah, this is great. Dude, it's been awesome talking to you again.